0: This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges.
1: This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Some agencies are starting to see higher rates of compliance with the White House's federal vaccine mandate. The Department of Education has the highest compliance rate at 100%. Federal employees who refuse to get vaccinated could face repercussions as serious as potentially losing their jobs. All agencies have shown improved vaccination rates following the release of the mandate back in November. The Safer Federal Workforce Task Force has new guidance for COVID-19 testing programs. Agencies have until February 15th to implement a screening process for unvaccinated government employees. That program will still apply to employees who have pending exemption requests that have not yet been approved. The White House will provide 10 million COVID-19 test kits to schools every month. That number includes 5 million rapid tests and 5 million PCR tests. The administration previously announced it would distribute 500 million of those tests across the U.S. in response to a surge of cases from the Omicron variant. President Biden says given the right resources, U.S. schools can and should stay open. The National Risk Management Center works to identify and address significant risks to critical infrastructure. It's housed within CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Bob Kolaski is head of the NRMC. Bob, welcome to the program. Thank
2: you, Mimi. Great to be here with you.
1: So outline for us the responsibilities of the National Risk Management Center.
2: Sure, within CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, um, the National Risk Management Center is a planning and analysis collaboration center our job is really to look at some of the most significant risks facing the nation um, from, a, from a range of hazards, cyber attacks, supply chain uh, compromises, other sorts of things that can go wrong, look at uh, look and understand those risks and set some priorities and, and then work with partners from across industry and state local government to address those risks and make real progress in collaboration to make the country more secure.
1: So even though you're part of CISA, you're not just looking at cyber attacks.
2: Sure. CISA, you know, CISA has broad responsibilities across critical infrastructure. Uh, We were very active around the pandemic, for example, where the things we were doing within the National Risk Management Center were helping to look at how's the pandemic challenging our infrastructure? How's it challenging our transportation networks, our, our health systems, um, other sorts of things, and particularly focus on um, you know, strengthening the ability of infrastructure services to continue to be delivered through challenges of the pandemic. That's just an example of something we do that's not just cyber specific.
1: Including weather catastrophes, terrorism attacks, all kinds of risks. Yes. So you have a list of 55 national critical functions, and then there are a whole bunch of sub-functions under that. How do you prioritize that list so you know what to focus on?
2: Sure, so so when when we look at the 55 critical functions are the things that infrastructure does that the country relies on, that our economy relies on, our communities rely on. Um, Traditional lifeline-type functions like the ability to keep the lights on, the ability to have water, our, our banking system, transportation network moving. But, but also things like keeping supply chains going, the ability to protect intellectual property, to conduct elections. Those are to, to deliver public s- services. Those are all part of what national critical fu- functions are. Our job is to work to think about where they are most um, substantially at risk, and, and do some level of prioritization, as you just suggested, maybe. So, so we do l- use an analytic approach. We work with partners to try to understand where there are potential vulnerabilities and threats to those critical functions and use that sort of vulnerability threat landscape and sort of an understanding of the dependencies of the functions to, to set those range of priorities. But it's a highly collaborative process. It brings analysis to bear, to have conversations with with industry in other parts of government to, to help set those priorities.
1: You've said in the past that one vulnerability can lead to cascading effects. Sure. Explain that.
2: There are a couple different types of vulnerabilities. One, there, there's a sort of a common vulnerability, what, what we're seeing right now with the log4shell vulnerability in cyber, which we've talked about a lot, where, where that's software code and then software. That it's used in a lot of different ways, and if that vulnerability is explo- exploited, there could be. Um circumstantial incidents. And then there's vulnerabilities in particularly important uh, systems that if those are exploited and the system goes down, there's impact that's broader than just on on the business itself and and the Colonial Pipeline is is sort of the best and and most well-known example of that where a vulnerability in an IT network of, uh, of the pipeline caused the pipeline company to make different decisions on how to operate the pipeline, the pipeline shut down and you saw that, you know, there were concerns about availability of gas, other fuel concerns and things like that, and that sort of really cascaded across a, a broader impact than just to the business.
1: Yeah, I want to ask you about supply chain, because we've seen yeah. problems with that in the past. Does How does your office look at risks to the supply chain?
2: Sure. In terms of risks to the supply chain, you know, we start by looking at hardware and software risks, right? And so, so much of what our infrastructure, how our infrastructure is operated is through digital means right now. And that means that we're reliant on um, hardware, software, industrial control systems, and all those things have supply chains, right? Those are all um, built and manufacturers and developed, Upstream, and there's there's a lot of technology that goes into each of those processes, and so we we work with industry, particularly the information communications technology industry, to evaluate the process, the life cycle by which that supply chain works, and to ensure that there's trust in in each step of the process. There, there's transparency and trust um, of the provenance. So that's a lot of how we look at the supply chain.
1: And how do you come up with the scenarios that you use to assess risk?
2: Sure. A, a, a lot of what a scenario is, is a potential hazard, something that goes on. So, so you mentioned, you, you know, we, we've grouped the scenarios of concern into six hazard areas. We, we talked a little bit about that cyber scenarios. And, and when you're talking about cyber scenarios, the ones we're most concerned about right now really are ransomware. Um, supply chain scenarios, we we talked a little bit about that, the pandemic and sort of spinoff effects of of COVID, Um, terrorism scenarios, natural hazards and natural hazards and and how that changes related to climate change. Um, And then another range of scenarios we look at is the current information environment where, where people are much less likely to trust the information they get from different sources and because of that they're not misinformation perhaps, mis- disinformation mi- is a risk yes mis- is malinformation particularly whether whether it's our adversaries who are pushing false narratives or it's just false narratives that are sort of emerging by themselves in-, in communities
1: so are you able to access the data that you need to really make the right decisions because a lot of what you're dealing with is private industry sure. that are in charge of this critical in- infrastructure and they're the operators of it
2: yes yeah, so, so a lot of what i spend my time at the national Nashua- Management Center is the behind the scenes. How can we build out our models and get the data, do the analysis? And, and you're absolutely right in terms of it's important to have relationships with private industry to, to get access to data they have, what they see on their systems. Um, we've made a lot of strides in that area, like, like the trust. I, I've been in a, a version of, of my job for 10, 12 years. The trust between industry and government um, in working on critical vulnerabilities, is a lot higher, and because of that, there's a lot more information sharing. But there are limits, and, and at times, it, I think there needs to be a little more legislative relief so, so that Congress is encouraging more and uh, enabling more um, information sharing with, with us and, and with CISA. Large. And,
1: and finally, Bob, do you feel like you have the support that you need when you say this is what we need to do to mitigate this risk? That that is implemented. It,
2: If there's a shared agreement of the risk, and the the best area where, where we have the support is after the 2016 election, we came together with the election community, state secretaries of state, state election directors, local election officials, and we really did a couple years of education of what the risk to our election systems were, and they stepped up. Um, we we talked about the 2020 elections, the most secure election that, that we've ever seen, and that's because state and local election officials took our information, took some of our guidance, and operated on their own systems to make their systems stronger.
1: All right. Well, Bob, thank you so much for the work that you do and for being on the program. Thanks,
2: Mamie. Great time to be here.
1: Coming next, rethinking partnerships between Chinese and American universities. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how Beijing leverages those relationships to gain a technological edge. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. China has been using its relationships with U.S. universities to get the technology and talent it needs to support their military-industrial complex and win the strategic competition with the United States. A new report details Chinese government influence on American universities. Craig Singleton is an adjunct fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Craig, welcome to the program. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. So China uses something called Confucius Institutes to partner with American universities. How do they work and what makes them dangerous to US national interests?
3: Sure. So, Confucius Institutes are Chinese government sponsored uh, organizations that provide Chinese language and cultural programming around the world. They've they've been under fire for the last few years because they've been seen as a threat to academic integrity on US college campuses. They've been seen as a vehicle to sort of promote Chinese soft power around the world. And what our report reveals is that they actually do more than that. They enable something called military civil fusion, which is a Chinese strategy that's intended to obtain cutting edge technology, including through theft, uh, to obtain military dominance.
1: So you've seen a direct link in your research between these Confucius Institutes and China's military
3: advancements? That's exactly right. And so what we've seen is when when a US university establishes a Confucius Institute, they enter into a contract, not only with the Chinese Communist Party, but also a Chinese civilian university Selected by the Chinese Communist Party to sort of jointly operate the Confucius Institute and support its programming. We've seen a massive reduction in the number of Confucius Institutes across the United States in the last three years. But what's remained are these academic and research linkages between the U.S. universities and the Chinese universities in question. And what's more frightening is that a lot of those Chinese universities have been directly tasked by the Chinese government to support China's nuclear weapons program, its missile development, and its cyber espionage platforms.
1: So U.S. universities aren't legally required to cut ties with Chinese universities that support Chinese military. But Why that's not? Exactly
3: they're not even required to do any due diligence. Uh, It's possible for U.S. universities to maintain academic and research partnerships and to work on cutting-edge technology and things like artificial intelligence or engineering with Chinese schools that we know are directly involved in China's nuclear weapons program. A great example on just how bad of some of these partnerships, uh, Arizona State University maintains a partnership with Sichuan University, which helps make China's nuclear weapons. Uh, Sichuan University has been identified by the Commerce Department as a threat to U.S. national security, and yet that isn't enough uh, legally or from a regulatory perspective to cut off China's pathways to leverage U.S. higher education to acquire that cutting-edge technology, and that's really just the tip of the iceberg.
1: You had conversations with Purdue University about this issue before publishing your report. Tell us about that.
3: We reached out to several schools before publication, with the goal being to simply make them aware of our findings. A lot of it was in Chinese data sources that we acquired. So we wanted to make sure that they were aware of maybe some of the activities that their partners were involved in. And we were really impressed by Purdue. Purdue took immediate action. Uh, they immediately conducted a review of all their Chinese partnerships. Uh, we were able to leverage all of our open source data to help them sort of vet some of their partnerships and sort of hopefully develop some sort of a threat matrix to review them. We'd really contrast that though with other schools like Texas A&M, my alma mater, one of their partners helps make Chinese nuclear submarines. And when we approached them with our data, they weren't in a position to undermine it. Uh, They actually defended the partnership and continue to do so. Um, At the same time, they receive about $400,000 a year from that Chinese university to maintain those partnerships. And so it's really sort of uh, hit or miss in terms of engagement with U.S. uh, US universities. Some seem to get it and others uh, have really dug in.
1: So Craig, do you think American universities are sufficiently aware of this issue and the dangers that it poses to U.S. interests?
3: I think it's a really evolving threat. We've seen over the last few years that the Chinese government has really decided to double down on its strategy to leverage its civilian universities to build out its military. And for a lot of U.S. universities who lack Chinese language experience or the ability to do appropriate due diligence, a lot of them are probably flying in the dark and have no idea that their partners are actually doing these sorts of things or that the research or students that they're hosting on campus may or may not be expected to return to China to support Chinese nuclear weapons program cyber espionage even sometimes the people liberation army itself and so we do think that there needs to be a broader conversation within the research uh, hierarchy and enterprise about risk about vetting and to sit back and say how can we appropriately determine whether we should maintain that partnership with that chinese university or whether the risk is too great and right now uh, those conversations are just really in the nascent stages
1: do you think there the, there is a way to maintain these partnerships but block China's ability to access sensitive R&D because academic and cultural collaboration is important between the two
3: countries? Absolutely. We think a scalpel, not a sledgehammer, is really needed to address this threat. Only about 90 Chinese civilian universities have been tapped by the Chinese government to support its military modernization. To put that in perspective, it's about 3% of all Chinese universities that we say are higher risk and deserve higher scrutiny. If, if a Chinese student wants to come over from any Chinese university and study American literature, by all means. But when we're talking about mechanical engineering, armament design, or other fields and disciplines that can support military advancement, we think that there should be some common sense guardrails.
1: So do you have any specific policy recommendations on this?
3: We do. In the report we outline in a number, both for the executive and legislative branch, First of all, we think universities should probably have to publish online contracts uh, that they have signed with the Chinese Communist Party, whether they're for Confucius Institutes or academic and research partnerships. We think we need to do a lot better of a job as a U.S. government of monitoring financial disclosures. A lot of these schools receive tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars from Chinese schools, and a lot of it isn't accurately reported to the Department of Education. We also think it makes a lot of sense for the U.S. government to produce a list every year for schools to inform them that these Chinese civilian universities that they may or may not be partnering with are supporting China's military. All the information contained in our report is from open sources. It can easily be published online and it could be used as a vehicle to educate U.S. higher education about the threat and perhaps uh, force a hard conversation about some of the partnerships that they have in place.
1: All right. Well, Craig, I appreciate you being on the program. Thanks very much. Thanks, Mimi. You can find a link to that report at govmatters.tv resources. Up next, there's a rise of authoritarian regimes using digital surveillance tools. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what the White House is doing to limit access to U.S. technology. We'll be right back. The Biden administration is concerned about the rise of digital surveillance by authoritarian regimes and is leading a global effort to clamp down on access to American technology. The effort will create a code of conduct for the U.S. and its allies to coordinate export licensing policies and increase control when technologies are exported from the U.S. Jennifer Hillman is a senior fellow for the trade and international political economy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Jennifer, welcome to the program.
4: Thank you, it's a delight to be
1: here. So what's the real problem here that the Biden administration
4: is trying to combat? So the issue has been that the use of all kinds of digital technology. I mean, that includes surveillance technology, censorship over the internet, uh, the ability to use artificial intelligence to process all kinds of data is effectively being used by authoritarian regimes to surveil, repress, and manipulate their, um, their own domestic populations and foreign populations as well. So again, gen- generally referred to as digital authoritarianism is what they're really worried about.
1: And what's been the real impact of U.S. companies providing China or other authoritarian regimes with these technologies? I mean, can't China create their own?
4: Well, China is creating a lot of its own technology, but, but again, we have to go back a little bit in time to figure out how did China become such a large producer and creator of a lot of this technology. It was done on the backs of a lot of American and other Western technology that made its way into China some of it legally uh, where companies went ahead and invested um, and started producing in China and their technology then got transferred over to their joint venture partners or others in China but a fair amount of it was either just flat out stolen and or forced to be transferred over to Chinese companies so a lot of our technology made its way into China and then the Chinese companies used that technology to become huge big you know, very competitive, very expansionary companies. I mean, Huawei and ZTE in the telecommunications area, Vision in their surveillance camera area. So a lot of the Chinese companies basically were built on the backs of Western technology. Nowadays, you still have Chinese companies that are still highly reliant on a a, a lot of the Western technology, most especially for advanced semiconductors. So there is still pockets of high tech that the Chinese cannot produce themselves. They have to rely on imports coming in from the United States, Europe, uh, Japan, and other Asian countries.
1: So do you think the Biden administration's plan to limit exports of American technology to China really will make a dent in
4: China's human rights violations? Well that is clearly the hope and the expectation and I think the Biden administration is going about it very intelligently because they're trying to do this not just the United States controlling the technology but again working with you know Europeans and others to try to create a network of countries that would control the same technologies that would control shipments to the same end of entities so again I think that that is the hope and the goal and and again coming out of for example, this summit for democracy was, was a pact that included you know, the United States and, and Norway and Australia and others to join together to say commonly we're going to go after um, controlling the technologies that can be used to do this kind of surveillance uh, that is creating all of the problems. You know,
1: I wanted to ask you about that summit for democracy that took place earlier this month. China and Russia were not invited. What was the purpose of that meeting?
4: Well, clearly the purpose of of the summit was to do a couple of things. One was to basically bring everyone together to try to come up with a common agenda to strengthen global democracies and democratic institutions. It was really organized around three basic themes. I mean, the goal was to try to come up with real action plans to defend against authoritarianism. That was one of the goals to fight corruption and thirdly, to promote a respect for human rights. So the idea was to bring a together again, governments, NGOs, private stakeholders, private companies to come up with clear sort of action plans on what are we going to do to address kind of these three goals? And to me, you saw two real commitments coming out of the summit. I mean, one was a commitment by the United States to spend on what is referred to as the Presidential Initiative for Democratic Renewal, $424 million to support independent news outlets, combat corruption, aid activists you know advance technology defend fair elections so again American spending, to try to promote democracy and respect for human rights abroad. The second thing that came out of it was this area of export controls, Uh, export controls and human rights initiative, again, designed to combat this digital authoritarianism that we've just talked about through greater export controls of technology uh, that can empower surveillance states. And again, this is a compact with the United States, Australia, Denmark, and Norway, with the hope that others will join and, and become part of this Uh, initiative. All right.
1: Well, Jennifer, thank you very much. We'll continue to watch and see what happens. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. You can get a preview and a recap of each show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You can sign up for the email list on our website. We're back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching, I'm Mimi Gerges.
0: Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems.
1: I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government?
0: What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, Uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course.
1: Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high speed satellite internet service.
0: It is. It is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016 and even an earlier version of it, Gen 4, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to Um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government.
1: Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning.
0: We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of uh, understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services, and we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical.
1: All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you.
0: Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our Daily Show is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit GovMatters.tv for articles, videos and more.